Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB managing editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB editor at large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Medea and Kate. Hi. Hey. So today we have a special two-part Valentine's Day episode. In our first segment, we're going to talk with Lori Essig about her new book, on the commercial ideology of romance in contemporary life titled Love, Inc., Dating Apps, The Big White Wedding, and Chasing Happily Never After. And then after the break, we'll come back with a conversation about writer Brialyn Hopper's new collection, Hard to Love, a series of personal narratives and critical essays that looks at the multiple forms of love and romance that can help sustain the rest of us in a world that's built for couples. So what do you guys feel about Valentine's Day? We're all anti-Valentine's Day. I feel neutral. Not anti, not pro. Yeah, I wouldn't pro. say anti, but I won't be celebrating, I'll tell you that. Oh. I'm, I'm anti. <laughs> There's what? a little anti inside of you. There was a little anti <laughs> yeah. to that um, I, tone. Yeah. I am anti-Valentine's Day. Okay, why? Because I feel that as a single person, it always made me feel inadequate. And as a person in any kind of relationship, it made me feel obligated to celebrate something that I otherwise, like, why do I need chocolates? Why do I need flowers or mm. whatever? Right. No thanks. And to compete for dinner reservations. No thanks. That's the yeah. worst part. Yeah. That's the part that I hate. Because, first of all, all the restaurants only offer very terrible prefix meals. Who wants to do that? It's all very expensive. A lot of pink sauces. Horrible. Gross. Horrible. I find that offensive. Yeah. Why would I... On a uh, what is supposed to be a special day, mm-hmm. even though I might disagree with that designation, go have a terrible meal for a lot of money. Yeah. Why can't you have makes, mole? Exactly. Mole? It, mm-hmm. I mean, that's Well, because it, it's black rather than red. Like Certain your, mole, not mole Colorado, <laughs> like I guess. Like your heart. <laughs> like my heart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I actually, I, I was also, um, <laughs> it's like I, I've been, as listeners know, it's like I've been in a relationship for a number of years. And actually, Valentine's Day played a role in that because when we first met, it was, I think, two days before Valentine's Day or something like that. And we were trying to figure out a time to get dinner together. And we both realized it was Valentine's Day, equally agreed that we both hated Valentine's Day. So our anniversary has always been February 15th, the day after Valentine's Ooh. Day, in which there's always restaurant reservations available because everybody's right. tapped out after Valentine's Day. Right. I wrote a poem in, in high school called The Day After Valentine's oh, Day. Oh, what, what was it about? What was it about? It was about a bad man who hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> was it based on a true story? Yeah. Of course. I mean, high school poetry I, is always based on a true story. I wasn't making it up in high school. Yeah. <laughs> well, can we um, hear more about uh, the poem? Okay. I guess he was a professional ice skater. What? Oh. He, yeah. And so I remember Talk about some the one that got away. His, no. Yeah. <laughs> to his frozen heart. You know, something like that. But um, I just wanted to share that the day after Valentine's Valentine's Day. Day. It's the best day, February 15th. I wish you had brought the poem with you. Maybe I'll find it and bring it another time. (laughs) All right. Well, I should say that our next two guests do have some similarly salty but sweet takes on Valentine's Day. So let's get to it. Let's do it. All right. We're excited to have Lori Essig on the phone with us today to talk about what else? Love. 
Lori is a professor and the director of Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at Middlebury College. Her popular writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Salon, and she is also a regular blog contributor for Ms. Magazine. She is also the author of American Plastic, which has the greatest post-colon title that I've read recently, which is Boob Jobs, Credit Cards, and Our Quest for Protection. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, Love, Inc., Dating Apps, The Big White Wedding, and Chasing the Happily Never After. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thank you very much. And if I can say this, happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) I love Valentine's Day, (laughs) especially because I teach a course called The Sociology of Heterosexuality. Mm. And Valentine's Day is always one of the first days of class. So I I get to (laughs) destroy all their dreams immediately. That's a great introduction. Yeah, I love that. So I wanted just for listeners briefly to kind of get a sense of quickly the argument that you present in the book is you kind of are revealing romance and especially our investment in it as an ideology, a kind of belief system that provides a distraction for us from the really big issues that we face in the world. And one of those things that you also underscore is that even though romantic love is our most private experience, it's also a global phenomenon. So I'm wondering if you can just give us a quick summary of what you're putting forward in the book. Yeah, I thought that was a really good summary. The one thing I would say is part of what I'm looking at is how we became more invested in romance since the 1980s, just in terms of increased spending on weddings, increased number of shows about weddings and honeymoons and cakes and engagements the way in which engagements themselves have become spectacular and YouTube phenomena and how all those things have to do with how we are increasingly invested in romance as a happily ever after, as a way into the future that will make us safe and secure, even as the future feels less and less safe and secure, both economically and ecologically. And so we've started to hyper-invest or super-invest in this fantasy that romance is how we're going to get the happily ever after, even though we kind of also know that that isn't true. How much of that has to do with conspicuous consumption? I mean, how much of that is just hyper-capitalism that touches everything and it's about any opportunity to kind of perform wealth? You know, what would you say about that? I think, of course, conspicuous consumption is surely part of it and the way in which new media forms change how we consume. So I think YouTube engagements are one of the most obvious examples of that or how before, if you proposed to your girlfriend, you would have done it semi-privately in a restaurant and how now you can have three different film angles and professional (laughs) editing and put it out into the world. So yes, surely it's about that, but it's not just that, right? Because otherwise, I thought this was really interesting. During the polar vortex, there was a police department in Missouri that said to everyone, hey, it's really cold out there. Please don't commit any crimes. Why don't you just stay home and watch Say Yes to the Dress? (laughs) Which I thought was my argument in a nutshell, right? Like the entire world is literally falling apart. You know, climate change has made it so that Things are happening that we couldn't even imagine happening. And the answer was to stay home and watch a show that's about finding the one perfect wedding dress and spending inordinate amounts of money on it. And it's not about the actual people in Kleinfeld doing that thing, but the fact that we all take so much joy from watching that thing. 
from fantasizing about it. I mean, you write a lot, and obviously romance is about fantasy. It's not only the fantasy of the white wedding, which you really aptly critique, and the whiteness of that wedding, but also the sense that romance as a fantasy privatizes all of our public feeling, right? Kind of constraining it into the shape of the conjugal couple, which as I was reading, I kept thinking that it's like, well, I've actually always thought of that being compassionate in relation with another person is really, really difficult. And that like romance gives us a place to practice a feeling and mode of relation that should be public, right? That it's like, because it's hard to love unconditionally everyone, we get to practice in very messy ways inside of a romantic pair. So I'm wondering, is there a way that we can turn away from the privatizing force of romance, even as we always will find ourselves in our own kind of love affairs? Yeah, I love that question because I don't want to critique what are the messy and sometimes ugly feelings, but also beautiful and deep feelings that happen between two people. What I think is interesting about romance that changed sometime in the probably 1800s or early 1900s was this idea that by dedicating ourselves to this relationship, we would have a safe and secure future. And that's really the change, right? So if you think of pre-modern romance, something like Romeo and Juliet or Lancelot and Guinevere, those did not promise a happy future for the couple, in part because the lady was married to the Lord, not to the knight in shining armor, or, you know, everyone killed themselves because they were teenagers from competing families. Spoiler alert. So, (laughs) spoiler alert. (laughs) Romeo and Juliet, romantic, but not romantic in the modern sense of the word. Yeah, It's really only with, you know, I hate to use the word modernity because it sounds so pretentious, but it's really only with the modern era of, companionate marriage of some notion of a happily ever after that we start to see people believe this as a fantasy. But if I find Mm. my prince or princess charming, then I will ride off into the sunset. And that becomes hyper mobilized in the 1980s. If you look at Disney during the 1980s, they were actually struggling financially because they had stopped making those fairy tale romance movies. They had turned to things like Herbie the Love Bug or Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in the 1970s, and they weren't doing so well. And they turned back to romance just at the exact right time with Little Mermaid was really one of the things that turned them around. And you can see that that also happened at a national level, political level with Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan sort of performing this I mean, it's strange to think now, right? But this sort of perfect marriage and Mm. telling us that we really need to focus on the family, right? We need to focus on being married and having stable married lives. They, of course, only meant heterosexual married lives. And that has been expanded to include gay and lesbian marriages in the recent past. But it's still this idea that that's how you get to a safe and secure future. And somehow the fact that Wealth has been transferred to the top one-tenth of one percent, and the environment is getting worse and worse each and every year. That sort of gets erased, right? Because all Mm. you need is your Prince Charming or Princess Charming. And so that's the kind of modern fantasy of romance that I think is particularly dangerous and different from the real authentic emotions we might feel with a partner. Laurie, so I wanted to ask you about the ways in which you break down some of the aspects of contemporary romance in the book. And one of those, I want to get to Disney, 
actually, because that does come back in the book. But let's talk a little bit about dating apps. What is your understanding of how dating apps have formed our understanding of contemporary romance? So I mostly, I interviewed people who were using dating apps to find a partner, which I understand is not the normal way in which people (laughs) use Tinder or Grindr, but interestingly, people do, right? They also think, well, that's just as good a way of meeting someone as anything else. So I interviewed people who were perhaps outliers in terms of how they use these apps. But what was interesting is they all came at it from using the apps in the more traditional way of hooking up. So I guess I think that they can be used in a variety of ways, just like going to a bar in the olden days of the 1980s, right? That people can use them both for hookups and for potential longer-term relationships. I did meet one woman in particular who used Tinder like an army general. She was planning on getting married and having children. She was turning 30. She had used Tinder for hookups previously. And she really was able to mobilize this app to get what she wanted in the end, which is to say that technologies are kind of neutral. It's the way we use them that matters. But obviously, I do think dating has changed drastically because of apps. Yes, but also because of the hookup culture that is so embedded in university life and that people are coming out of hookup culture. And that's not to say that I think there's anything unusual about hookup culture, except that it demands a lack of affective attachment with the person you're having sex with. And that seems fundamentally different to me than what came prior to hookup culture. People had one night stands in the 1970s, 1980s without having to feel like they couldn't kiss the person they were having a one-night stand with or say hello to them in the library the next day, right? This is a very disconnected way of having sexual interactions with someone. And so I think it's more the effects of hookup culture than the technologies of dating apps per se that are creating a kind of dating apocalypse, as some people call it. So it's interesting to say that because it's like, I actually, I'm fascinated by dating apps in maybe like a negative way because I actually see the problem with them as slightly different, which you do address in the book, which is that effectively they become like so many of my friends, they become a second job. And the other negative side of them is not just the hookup culture thing for me, but rather the illusion or the delusion of ever more fish in the sea, that it kind of makes that readable and manifest for you. And therefore, I think that we end up, A, not having the kind of kismet hookup, right? You're now just hooked up by algorithm, and that has all other kinds of negative, I think, socioeconomic fallout from it. But also, you're devoting time to romance as if it were a job, right? As if there was some way to find the perfect partner, which seems to me a huge problem with where our culture is now in terms of just constantly wanting to maximize or make everything efficient and perfect. Yeah, and the other thing is because they exist, 40% of the men on most of these apps are in fact married or partnered or living with a partner already. So it's a kind of, yeah, it's a kind of interesting way of constantly playing out that idea that there are always other fish in the sea. And as I do talk about in my book, social psychology shows us very clearly that the more choices we have, the less happy we are. So it's probably not very surprising that most people hate modern dating. I didn't meet anyone who said 
this is great. I love this. This is really working for me. (laughs) Even if they were just trying to hook up, I think that they still were affected by being ghosted or how these hookups played out or something felt off to them. I can't quite remember what dating felt like before apps, but I have a feeling people are less happy having this many more choices. Lori, I wanted to ask you about the different ways that this idea of happy ever after plays out for men or women, for, you know, heterosexual versus queer people. Like, did you see a different kind of story being pushed to different gender sexualities? I guess I have to say as a lesbian, I'm shocked that there didn't seem to be a difference. If you look at say spectacular engagements on YouTube, they are really consistent between gay and lesbian couples and heterosexual couples in terms of the songs they use, the costuming, the dropping down on one knee to pop a diamond ring out at the end as a sort of denouement. So that struck me as interesting, which makes me think that the sexual citizenship afforded to gays and lesbians with gay marriage rights means that marriage is now primarily distributed according to race and class lines. And sexuality is no longer a major way in which marriage rights are distributed, which is not to say that that change is overnight, but it does seem that the younger people who are performing these engagements and rituals aren't particularly different than the heterosexual couples performing them. They're white, they're normatively gendered, they seem to have some amount of resources, and they're certainly as invested in a diamond ring as everyone else seems to be. Um, (laughs) What did give me hope is I went to this mass lesbian wedding in Provincetown at, at the end of my research, and I was really struck at how they were able to do something that was both communal, it was a mass lesbian wedding, and also very political and the way in which they talked about lesbian marriage as a way of expanding the meaning of what marriage is as thinking through how patriarchy doesn't have to play out in this institution and to think beyond the couple to the broader world and what needs to be done in the larger world. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting moment to think about how gay and lesbian weddings might explode marriage as an institution. But overall, I don't think that that is happening. I think it's playing out among wealthier, whiter, more educated gays and lesbians in ways that are predictable. So, Lori, one thing as we kind of wrap up that I wanted to ask to see if this is something different or really just the same trap, but looking a little bit different. I've noticed amongst my friend set, both straight and queer couples, that there's an increased interest in polyamory. And in some ways, this would seem to be breaking a little bit out of the privatization of the couple and something that looks like creating a mobile and flexible family kinship network, like something that's a little broader. I mean, would you see that sort of thing as something that moves us beyond the privatized limits of the conjugal couple? Or is this really just another way of entrapping ourselves in love's ideology? such an interesting question, right? Because if you think about when sexual citizenship, when being married became the basis of our citizenship rights, so think Mm -hmm. late 1800s, that fight at a national level was about 
polygamy, which I realize is a very different thing, but still there was something about the couple that was important to the United States of America to invest in. And it's why gays and lesbians obviously fought so hard for gay marriage. I mean, there's still over a thousand rights and privileges awarded at the federal level to people who are married versus people who are not. So I think polyamory has a potential for exploding that to the extent that people aren't also benefiting from the rights and privileges of marriage. But of course, if you have polyamory, but people are also getting citizenship rights on the basis of marriage, that's a little harder to know whether or not it changes that particular piece of it. What is an interesting fact is for the first time ever, a minority of Americans are married. So even as we... Oh, really? I did not know that. Yes, it just happened, I think, last year or the year before, and I can send you the data for it. So it is true that fewer and fewer Americans have been getting married since 1900. The marriage rate has been going down. There was a blip in the 1950s, of course, with the post-war marriages, but in general, it's a downward trend. And so what's interesting is even though fewer and fewer of us are getting married, more and more of us are fantasizing about marriage as a way to a safe and secure future. So I guess the question is, are people in polyamorous relationships exploding that myth Mm. that marriage or romantic relationships will lead us to a safe and secure future consciously or not? But it certainly has the potential, I think, to explode the idea that we own somebody else's sexuality, we own somebody else's body. It certainly explodes a lot of the patriarchal basis of sexual monogamy, which of course, Engels and Marx wrote about long, long ago as being (laughs) the origin of private property in the state. So I think that's an interesting moment. I think anything potentially could. I don't want to say that there's anything wrong with getting married or not getting married or being polyamorous or not being polyamorous. None of that is a bad strategy. What's a bad strategy is to believe that that's how you get to a safe and secure future. Yeah. That, I think, is really the more radical potential is for all of us, whether we're married or not married, polyamorous or asexual. It doesn't really matter who we are in this. What matters is that we stop believing that our private relationships can get us to a safe and secure future, as opposed to our communal relationships and large structural changes that could possibly stop things like the polar vortex from happening. So actually, this does bring us to one of the ways in which you show the reader how we might be able to reorient away from this kind of understanding of love as a way to a secure future into a more collective understanding of how that might happen. Do you mind being a little bit more specific or explaining how you foresee that kind of orientation happening? Yeah, I think in a way, maybe it already is. I've been having this really deep sense that our love affair with socialism at the moment and our love affair with AOC and the fact that the notion of a 70% tax rate on the $10 million is popular across the political spectrum might be this moment where we're moving away from a romantic and privatized sense of our future to a more collective and communal sense of our future. And That may or may not be true, but it seems like there is this shift happening in the United States where people are more willing to think about 
we can think collectively to get to a safer and more secure future rather than I need to spend $50,000 on my wedding. Having said that, I will say wedding spending continues to go up. People are spending slightly more this year on Valentine's Day. We're going to spend on average $145 per person on Valentine's Day. That's about $19 billion in 2019 in the U.S. Despite the global economic slowdown, despite the longest federal shutdown in history, despite all those reasons, we might not be doing that. So it's almost like two things are going on culturally at the same time. There's a move away from privatized futures towards more collective notions of how we might solve our problems. And we're continuing to really invest in the ideology of romance or the religion of romance by buying $145 worth of stuff on Valentine's Day. We're still suckers for love. What can you say? <laughs> yeah, I think we're kind of atheists lighting a candle. I don't right. I don't think we've decided which direction we're going yet. Well, as we <laughs> wander out into the dark on this Valentine's yeah. Day, I want to thank you so much for joining us, Lori. We've been speaking with Lori Essig, who is the author of Love Incorporated, Dating Apps, The Big White Wedding, and Chasing Happily Never After. Thank you so much for joining us, Lori. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lori. Happy Valentine's Day. (laughs) Happy Valentine's Day. You are listening to a special Valentine's Day episode of the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. That was our conversation with Lori Essick, author of Love, Inc., Dating Apps, The Big White Wedding, and Chasing Happily Never After. Now we turn to our conversation with Brialyn Hopper, author of the essay collection, Hard to Love. We're pleased to have with us today writer Brialyn Hopper. Brialyn writes about a number of different topics in culture and American life for a variety of publications, including our very own Los Angeles Review of Books, as well as New York Magazine, The New Republic, and The New Inquiry. She joins us today to talk about her new collection, Hard to Love, which weaves together Brialyn's own personal stories and literary criticism and histories in order to explore the multiple forms of relation that secure our life and love beyond the romantic couple. Welcome to the show, Brialyn. It's great to be here. So one thing just to kind of open it up is that the collection samples, as I was saying in your intro, a kind of diverse range of materials such as histories, literature, art criticism, pop culture, in order to kind of talk about the ways that we relate to others and how we rely on others. Uh, Or in your kind of that opening essay, which you say leaning on other people. Can you just talk a little bit about how you came to the project and what the writing process was, kind of corralling all of these different materials? Yeah, so actually it all started at LARB. (laughs) I've been interested in kind of writing about uh, love, family, relationships, friendships for a while. I'd written a couple of pieces already around that, but I wasn't really envisioning it as a book project at that point. Mm. And I saw that there was this book called Spencer coming out, and that's a term that I've sometimes used to describe myself. And I was, I, it's a term I'm really interested in and a fan of. So I asked to review the, the book Spencer. I expected to like it. I ended up hating it. <laughs> <laughs> Which you write about in the book very yeah. eloquently. <laughs> Yeah. So um, 
yeah, my review just sort of spiraled and it became not just like a review of the book, but an essay that was also about my history with, with this word, um, my own experiences with it, everything that I've ever read or watched, like Henry James, August Wilson, like whatever, um, Tennessee Williams adaptation movies from the fifties, all of it just sort of, um, this big conglomeration, um, I crowdsourced from friends and it just sort of became this sprawling like takedown, <laughs> which also is kind of me trying to provide an alternative vision of what I sort of wished the book had been. Well, let's talk um, about that. Oh, sorry to interrupt you, but let's talk about that sure. essay a little bit, just because that was one of my favorite pieces in the book and the term spinster, you know, what it brings to mind for me, of course, is some old woman like sitting on a chair by herself, knitting, you know, completely isolated. Um, but you have such an expansive vision of, of what it is. And when you start listening to examples, I, I realized, wow, this is a, such a huge kind of cultural figure that is so important and also has a lot of possibility, I think, in a feminist uh, tradition. So I, I'd love for you just to expound a little bit more on the on the spinster figure and what in what in Kate Bollock's book bothered you so much. I mean, I think that well, the the obvious thing that bothered me about Kate Bollock's book was that she wrote about five women in it um, who are sort of models for her of of ways to be women, and um, all of them are married. Um, she didn't have a single. Not one of them was a spinster. <laughs> so. Just like on a basic level of um, of bait and switch, like that bothered me, like just accurate packaging. But I think also like there's something very like she was editor of an interior design magazine. The there, there was a picture of her on the front that was just beautifully styled, and the whole image that she was describing was just sort of like so perfectly packaged for, um, you know, it was glamorous. It was perfectly packaged for advertising or to sell it just was sort of too too obviously conventionally appealing and I think part of what has attracted me to the idea of spinsters is that they are weird they're not conventionally beautiful they're abrasive they're really hard to um, package (laughs) um, appealingly they're really a dissonant and disruptive forces often or they're kind of forces that like uh, or they're they're just kind of like figures off to the side that people don't actually care about and would never be you know used to kind of put on the front of a book and sell it Mm -hmm. so I think it was it was this kind of spectrum of um like invisibility um ugliness anger uh, like just sort of opting out of different kinds of markets um whether it's like the marriage market or uh, other kinds of ideas of like what a productive life looks like. And that's sort of everything that I, you know, love about Spencer's and wanted to see in a book called Spencer. <laughs> right. You know, one of the things that was kind of a, a weird coincidence, Brielle, is that when on the day that I was reading your book, um, let's see, uh, it was earlier this week. So <laughs> yesterday, <laughs> um, this, this is still early in the week. But yeah. uh, when I was reading your book, uh, I also got a galley delivered in the midst of reading it by uh, Elia Kim Kissler for his new book, Happy Singlehood, which is a sociological study of the rising acceptance of what they call solo living. And that's one of oh, like kind of several books and essays that I've seen about singleness. And I'm wondering, are we at a moment when we're reconsidering the primacy of the kind of conjugal couple? Or is this tension something that's always been there in American life? The answer is probably both. Okay. I think that um, I think that it's no coincidence that a lot of the kind of there are different golden ages of spinster mm. 
you know, that, that often appear after a war comes through and kills everyone or all the men rather. So, I mean, I think that just sort of, you know, thinking about like historically, there are these uh, waves of, you know, spinster representations that come, you know, like after the Civil War, after World War One, as there are all these just kind of extra women. Um, and it has to do with kind of demographic shifts. And you can see this, you know, happening that like now in terms of just these kind of like big dem- demographic forces that create these like spinster cultural figures. This is happening with the phenomenon um, of leftover women currently. Um, but I think like, so I think that some of that is just, there are these like demographic and kind of uh, reasons why this has kind of like been, this figure has been important over time. And I think that there, you know, there are definitely forces like that happening now having to do with, you know, like everything that people write about millennials, like not being able to afford to get married or have kids, mm. um, all of that. Um, economic forces um, uh, together with, you know, in previous generations, like uh, women being able to be, you know, self-supporting. Like I was just watching the Mary Tyler Moore show and there was an episode in which I just sort of realized like, oh, women in the 70s couldn't get credit cards. Like that was the thing. What? So they couldn't get credit cards? More, um, yeah. So even just sort of basic economic rights that would enable you to have an independent life has only just kind of become possible relatively recently. So something, something I don't know. I think that uh, there. Sorry. Oh, I would just wanted to ask. There's an interesting, um, especially in regards to the Spinter's essay, the idea that a woman would, um, you know, not pursue marriage and instead devote her life to something else of greater value. Um, as opposed to then just like more the kind of self-care. I mean, not not that they can't exist simultaneously, but I, I really like that distinction you made that, you know, if a woman pursues a, a different path, she she won't be... It's not about just being single and then being subsumed with being single. She can then have the freedom to give her life to something else. Maybe talk... Could you talk about yeah. that a little bit? Yeah, I think like both in that essay and overall in the book, I think one of the big arguments that I'm trying to make is that being single doesn't mean being disconnected or being free of responsibility or being alone. Um, And it also doesn't mean that your life is easy and unencumbered and disentangled. (laughs) I feel like um, the kind of life that I always wanted um, was a life that was really embedded in um, in a social community, really connected to other people, um, really devoted to relationships and and meaningful work and like larger purposes. And so I feel like for me, the single life that I aspire to and believe in and try to live is very much about being kind of. Um, totally enmeshed in difficult relationships and and larger purposes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Something that I wanted to ask you was how did you, so part of the, part of the essays in this collection discuss your personal trajectory as well as, you know, um, the various ways in which you engage with books and culture. How did you personally come to your understanding of what you wanted out of a single life? What relationships led to that? sort of uh, formulation of what you're looking for? Yeah, so um, the first essay in the book is called Lean On, A Declaration of Dependence. Um, it's out on Long Reads now. And it sort of 
talks about how my how my romantic trajectory kind of played a role in my rethinking of the shape of kind of single versus married life. I just I grew up sort of taking for granted what I've been raised with this idea that what you try to do, you know, if you if you want to have a family, then in your 20s, early 30s, you try to find a life partner, then you have kids with them. And I didn't really question it. And then after I had a couple of breakups in my 20s and, and was single for a while, I realized I can't just defer my meaningful love life, you know, indefinitely. <laughs> I need to actually start living my real life now and actually just think of the the relationships that I have now as the, the kind of the loves of my life. So it was really, it was kind of out of uh, necessity. Um, and it was also, as I write about in Spencer's, it was also about just meeting a lot of women who were 10 or 20 years older than me. There are several women who are kind of mentors for me who offered me just a really different vision of life where it's like, it wasn't just like you pair off or you have a conventional family or you define yourself as someone who failed to do that, but you just sort of create alternative um, family and friend structures that sustain you. Could you share some of those visions? So, I, I mean, I think when you, when you say you, you had some mentors, what do you, what do you imagine or what do you, what visions did they provide for you exactly? I think some of the things that, that they modeled for me were just the kind of mutual caregiving and ways of maintaining friendships over time and over space. Mm -hmm. So um, like my grad school advisors, um, one of them told me that, and she ended up being in a kind of romantic partnership, but she was like, I really learned about caregiving and vulnerability and um, maintaining connections with people through my friendships. And that kind of like continues to be something that she maintains even now that she has, I guess, even now that she's married. I think that also just sort of, seeing relationships like teaching and mentoring relationships as places where you can just pour a lot of yourself into them and um, find a lot of meaning. Like that's definitely something that they modeled for me and I was the beneficiary of that. They also really saw their, their work as personally fulfilling and just kind of on a deep level about expressing their passions and values. And I think like I came from a family where, you know, my dad did construction work and my mom was uh, stayed at home with us and did kind of childcare in the home for a long time. And neither of them really felt like they had a kind of career that was a scope for, for, for love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think like, I think they were just like working to pay the bills. Mm. So I think that this idea of just sort of seeing the kind of like the way that your friends could also be your coworkers, could also be the people that you love, could also be the meaning of your life was just something that I didn't really encounter until graduate school. And it was a really beautiful vision. See, one of the things that struck me as I was reading your book is a thought that often occurs to me, which is that if it is insane to imagine that single people lead somehow impoverished lives, it's also, I think, sometimes equally insane to imagine that that the couple is the ultimate salvation. I mean, I think anybody that's been in a, what I would call a quote-unquote <laughs> real relationship recognizes deeply the limitations of cohabiting with someone else. And, you know, and that's intellectual, right. emotional, 
um, all those kind of things. And I think in in my own experience, and maybe my I've been in a relationship now actually two days short of thirteen years. Wow. Um, but that is one of many central romances in my life. You know, I have, and I don't know mm-hmm. if that's more of a a gay thing. I mean, the other thing that interests me in your book is when you talk about how, uh, it, which is a deep fear of mine, that in fact the enfranchisement of gay marriage is a great thing, but also kind of limits the alternative systems of kinship and the kind of network of intimate friends and lovers and those sorts of things that were, I think, one of the real achievements of LGBTQ culture over, you know, centuries. So I'm wondering if in, in some ways, as you explored singlehood, you also came to see the limitations of couplehood. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's definitely true. And I write in the in the book about how, you know, even though I believe in the expansion of marriage rights to, <laughs> I feel like they should, I almost like believe in the expansion of marriage rights to people who are not married. <laughs> I've been so pro, um, so pro of uh, marriage. So I believe that like you should be able to like marry people that you um, are not in love with and uh, <laughs> I think you're but, allowed um, to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, like sometimes you have to like prove to the government that that you um, are actually sleeping with someone. But yeah, I, I mean, I believe that you should be able to just like have marriages of convenience and be very unapologetic about that and not worry that like you're scamming anyone. I, um, yeah, that's like the, that's a side issue, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like the, the, um, the particular uh, language of the Supreme Court ruling that was talking about like this binary of like if gay people aren't allowed to marry, then they are condemned to loneliness. Right. It just seemed to be uh, totally just like selling out. Or gener- like that's not and that utterly not untrue. Like not true to gay people's yeah, experience. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if you study history at all, there are many, many stories of the AIDS epidemic, and I don't want to be reductive, but, like, one of the things that you really saw in that is the ways that families that had no legal standing could be so much more um, real and supportive and, mm-hmm. and sustaining than kind of, like, official, um, like, legal blood nuclear families. And the idea that this is there's something kind of... Um, you know, more legitimate or or less lonely about legal marriage is just kind of offensive. <laughs> you explore a lot of different types of relationships in the book, especially in that spinster essay you talk about, you know, family members, sisters who live together, Boston marriages, all these different kind of pairings. And um, you live in a communal situation or once did, right? With a group of girlfriends. Yeah, well, I've um, I've had a lot of roommates, and so I write about I write about them in the book. Um, I'm currently actually ex- experimenting with living alone. <laughs> it turns uh, out okay. I don't like it. You don't like <laughs> it? I love it. I wish that I could get it oh, again. Please. You haven't lived alone in thirteen in years. thirteen yeah, years. I don't know when yeah, you're but around. I I would love to be alone. I, it's it's so great. We talk about our okay. fantasy houses so, where we live apart. No, I mean, I think that my ideal would be to live in an apartment building with everyone that I loved. Mm, um, that sounds good. And then, you know, we could just sort of like, actually, I live across the street from, I just met some neighbors across the street where there are like three generations of families who have 
two apartments across the hallway from each other and the kids can just run back and forth. And I'm just like, oh, that's just, that's like, I think that that would be the best. That's beautiful. But um, yeah, right now, right now I'm experimenting with, um, yes, living alone in the studio apartment. I think I, it's not my favorite, hmm. but um, why, yeah, why don't I, you like it? I, I think I'm just not built to live by myself. And just on like basic animal level, like I'm just not a solitary, I'm not like a lone wolf. I just like having other bodies around. So I felt very lucky for a couple of years in New Haven before I moved to New York. I had a really wonderful roommate who I write about in the Lean On essay where it was just kind of, it's a particular kind of joy just to kind of share a daily life with someone and I, I miss it, and I've had it in the past. I hope I have it in the future. Um, I also have a, an epic essay in the middle of the book called Hoarding, which is partly about coming from a family of hoarders and being a hoarder and partly about this kind of crazy roommate situation I had with my best friend for a year where we loved each other very deeply and were completely incompatible, and I was just sort of returning to that year of <laughs> roommate horror and trying to make sense of it. And and just because this is a Valentine's themed episode um, and you have a special mm-hmm. way of celebrating Valentine's Day, right? Yeah. I'm, so I guess Valentine's Day is now like a, like a corporate holiday. Really? <laughs> just like that is, yeah, I was just reading an article about how it's being used to sell like wine is my boyfriend like paraphernalia or whatever. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, Got to get that shirt. So, <laughs> yeah. So the capitalists have discovered Valentine's Day. But um, I do I do celebrate Valentine's Day every year. And I just kind of have friends over. They don't have to be women, but they have to have friends who are women. And, um, yeah, so it's basically just a friendship celebration. I make a lot of cake. Um, people write Valentine's to each other. Um, there's like a craft table. It's, it's fun. Um, and I actually, I'm having my book launch tomorrow for Valentine's day, which I'm excited about. Oh, that's really sweet. lovely timing. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Well, okay. So we unfortunately do need to end it there, but that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Brielle, for coming on the show to talk about singlehood and living with others. Uh, we really appreciate it. And we've been speaking to Brielle Hopper, author of hard to love. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was so much fun. Thanks. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.